Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike. I'm married to Sarah, just at the back somewhere with our two little girls. Uh, we've been here, part of Real Life Church, for just over a year now. God called us to move from where we were in Bedfordshire and to come and be part of this church. It's been a quite an exciting journey um, to, to get here, get involved, and get to know lots of you. It's a real, real pleasure. So as Stuart said, I'm going to be continuing in our series of, uh, from the Gospel of John today. And we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses from John chapter 12. But the first thing I want to do is ask you a question. And the question is this. What would you do if you suddenly got a surprise £100? Let's say all the bills are paid. Let's say um, you've got everything you need. And then this money just popped up out of nowhere. What would you do with it? What would you think? What would you feel? In fact, how about we up the ante? Let's say it was £1,000. What would you do if someone gave you a thousand pounds out of nowhere? What would you think? What would you feel about that? Now, hold that thought. We'll come back to that later. Now, before we get into our passage from John, I want to bring in another scripture to set the scene. Because the theme from this scripture plays a very central role in what we're going to be learning from John chapter 12. And I'm actually going to read from Matthew chapter 6. So if you've got your Bible and you want to read along, go to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 19, from verse 19. It says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, when Jesus returns, we are all going to face him, and we're going to be judged. That may be a surprise to some of you. We're going to have to give an account for our lives. Even Christians, we're going to be judged at the end of time. And the result of that is going to be varying degrees of reward in heaven. And that's what these verses I just spoke about are talking about. The treasures we lay up in heaven are what we'll get if we've lived a good life and it's counted for God. Now, don't get confused. Our salvation has already is judged at the cross. It's a done deal for those who trust in Jesus. So... Our life's going to be judged at the end, but when we stand before Jesus, judgment isn't going to be about heaven or hell. That's, that's determined. The judgment is going to be on how we've lived, whether or not we've been a good steward with what God has given to us, whether we've been generous with our time, with our gifts, our abilities, and with what we have, with our money. And it's our money that I want to focus on here. Now, just to say, Jesus doesn't expect everyone to have the same income or to have the same standard of living. He's not a socialist. So if you've got one person who's a really good steward, you've got another person who's a really bad steward, then more resources are going to go to the person who's a good steward because they're more reliable. So Jesus looks at us like someone running their retirement account. So they might put their retirement pot of money across multiple investments. And if they see that one of them is performing really well, giving a really good return, and the others are not doing so well, then they're going to move all their money into the one that's giving a good return, that's giving good interest. And they'd be a fool not to do that. And Jesus is like that with us. If you're not faithful with a little, he's not going to give you more. Even what you have is going to be taken away from you, the Bible tells us. What he wants are faithful, good stewards who give generously, bless others, and just keep for themselves what they need. They're not wasting their money, they're being faithful with it. And so Jesus sees they're reliable and he trusts them with more. Because he knows that they're going to use it wisely. They're going to use it to bless those in need. And rather than keeping it all for themselves, rather than storing up treasures for themselves on earth. So I want to ask you, what is your treasure? And where is your heart this morning? Well, let's see. Let's have a look at verse 24 from Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. There is something about money which, in, in our fallen human condition, means it tends towards mastery very, very easily. And I think it's because, in, a, in an earthly sense, it can buy you security, it can buy you pleasure, it can buy you significance, it can buy you acceptance among other people. And these are all the very real needs that God has put into us, but he's designed us for those to be met purely, primarily by him, by God alone. You can't serve both God and money. If you've got a master, someone you submit to, something that you, you, you joyfully, willingly submit to, if something else tries to come in and take that top spot in your life, you're going to hate that other thing. So what is master of your life? What is most valuable to you? Is it Jesus or is it money? It can't be both. So does money master you or do you make it your servant so that you can be generous and bless others in service to your real King Jesus? So we're going to go to, um, to our passage for today, John chapter 12. <clears throat> I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's just pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word, and I want to thank you for the authority that you have placed onto it. And I want to pray this morning for obedience to your word, for everyone here. Father, we don't want to be like Judas. We want to be like Mary. And if anyone here this morning is in the kind of bondage that Judas was in, Lord, I want to pray that... I want to pray for deliverance by your word of God. It's powerful. It's like a double-edged sword, and it it reaches down and pierces down to those kinds of slaveries. And Lord, I pray that you would come and just set people free from that if they are in bondage to this love of money, so that they can be lavishly generous by your grace and your power for your glory. Amen. Now, before we go into the story in, in more detail, I just want to remind you what happened in chapter 11. So we've got Lazarus, we've got his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Evidently, this is a family that Jesus knew quite well. He had a lot of care for them. He loved them. And Lazarus gets sick and he dies. But Jesus comes and brings him back to life. And understandably, everyone there, everyone who sees it happen, is staggered and absolutely overjoyed at his resurrecting power. Except the Jewish authorities. Some people run off and tell them what has happened. So the chief priests and the Pharisees... They're worried that if, if loads of the Jews go away and start following Jesus as if he's king, 
then the Romans, who say you can have no king but Caesar, they will take away the Jewish leaders' privileges and power and even maybe even boot them out of Jerusalem. And this is what they're fearful of. So they, they put together this plan to kill Jesus, to stop this uprising before it happens. And so we see that Jesus then leaves the region quite quickly. He goes to a place called Ephraim. And so chapter 11 ends with verse 57, which says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that is Jesus, he should let them know so they might arrest him. And then what I want you to see is that the, that theme of hatred and, and this desire to kill Jesus is repeated at the end of our passage for today. So verses 9 to 11. Uh, which says again, I'll just read it again. When a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the Jewish authorities came up with this ingenious plan, as far as they were concerned, and it's (laughs) staggering powers of logic and reason they possess. They decide not only they're going to kill Jesus, but now they want to kill Lazarus as well. You know, they've just witnessed this incredible miracle, this most outrageous act of God in raising somebody from the dead, and they want to kill him. They want to kill Jesus, and they want to kill Lazarus as well. And I just, I I love the way that John puts this passage together, because what you've got, you've got at either end, before and after, you've got people who want to kill Jesus. And then right sandwiched in the middle is a breathtaking, beautiful story where you've got these other people who are so overwhelmed by Jesus' beauty and power and value, it just overflows in this amazing display of gratitude towards him. And in the midst of this, we also have Judas and the way he responds. And so it's this eight verses, verses one to eight, that I'm really going to focus on today. And I'm also going to do something a preacher doesn't normally do. I'm going to tell you right now the whole point of the story. I'm going to kind of give away the end right now. Um, and as we go through the story, as John takes us through, you'll... you'll Various bits and pieces will stand out all the more when you know where this is headed. And I think the point of the story is this. I think it is beautiful, it is biblical, when Jesus is the most valuable thing in our lives. And it is not beautiful, but it is suicidal when anything else takes his place. Something like money. So, I'm going to go through the story in a bit more detail now. So we'll start with verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, which is an interesting word here, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So first thing is, why is therefore in this verse? Some people think that it's because, as it said, it's soon to be Passover. And so what would often happen is that many Jews would go up to Jerusalem maybe a week before Passover for purification. If they had sinned, if they were unclean, they would need to go through these purification rites. And so some people think that the verse says, therefore, Jesus came to Bethany because it was six days before Passover and he was going for purification. But it doesn't make any sense because Jesus is sinless. He's perfect. He's clean. He doesn't need to go through purification. So I don't think that's it. Now remember, at the end of chapter 11, John has reminded us the chief priests and the Pharisees have issued a warrant for his arrest because Lazarus was raised from the dead. And so when it says, therefore, He's coming back deliberately. What we know is Jesus is coming back, knowing he's going into danger and not away from it. And it's intentional. This Passover, as far as he knows, this Passover is the last one. It's time. It's his time. Six days, he's going to be dead, and he knows it. And he's coming back on purpose. So then verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, right? But in chapter 11, when it happened, 
Jesus had to leave pretty quickly because of all the animosity, all the, all the, you know, what the, the Jews, their hatred of him and the, their plans to kill him. He had to get out of there pretty quickly. So Mary, Martha, and Lazarus didn't really have an opportunity to thank him properly, to um, just show how much they, they loved him and were thankful for what he'd done. But now he's come back. And so they've, they're giving him this dinner. And I think we need to understand the significance of this. It's not your ordinary dinner. It's not like Jesus showed up at the door and they said, oh, hey, Jesus, we're just having dinner. Why don't you come in and join us? No, no, it's much more significant than this. They gave him a dinner. And I think this is quite a large affair. I think this was well-planned and meticulously planned. I think what we're about to read that Mary does was planned. I think Martha planned the whole event. I think the way she served, the way she was hospitable was planned. I think Lazarus sitting there as exhibit A, you know, this is the guy that was raised from the dead. He's sitting there. I think that was planned. And I, I think, I get the impression there were probably a lot of other people there as well. Maybe it was like a, a wedding reception. You know, you've got Jesus, you've got Lazarus, maybe some other distinguished guests on this high table, the most important table, and then you've got other people around that are focusing on them. And Jesus is the center of attention. It's a very special dinner in his honor who raised Lazarus from the dead. Martha's making sure that everything's just so. Lazarus is watching. And then Mary is about to express her heart to Jesus on behalf of her family in an incredibly lavish way. And that's what we see in verse 3. So verse 3 says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So we've got another, therefore. This dinner is, is in honor of Jesus. So Mary's going to make this presentation. She's going to do this wonderful thing for him. Now we don't know where this immensely valuable perfume, this bottle of ointment came from. We, we believe that this family were, were fairly wealthy, fairly prominent, so maybe they just clubbed together and bought it. Maybe it was an heirloom that was been passed down from generations. Maybe, maybe they even went out and had a whip round and got the money together to buy this, this valuable jar of perfume. We don't really know. Um, but what was going to happen here was just astonishing. So Mary took a pound, and the, the, the Greek word underneath here is litra. What it really actually translates to is something around about just over 300 milliliters. So we're talking about something about the size of a can of Coke. And that's, that's a lot of perfume. If you buy perfume these days, you get it in maybe 50, 100 mil, that's the most. And that's expensive. We're talking about a 300 and something mil jar of this incredibly valuable perfume. And so Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, a very highly valued fragrance. And she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with a fragrance. So we've got Martha's role is to see the dinner's put on, that everything works, everything goes according to plan, everything, everyone is served, taken care of. Mary's role is to take this flask and to pour it over Jesus' body and his feet. And then wipe his feet with her hair. And in both these ways, they're expressing their wonder, their joy, their thanks for the greatness of Jesus and his grace and his power that raised their brother from the dead. And he's sitting right there. This is a beautiful story. But then in verses 4 to 5, the story takes quite a turn. Judas speaks up. So let's just read verses 4 and 5. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now these, these verses reveal, in my mind, two things. Firstly, how expensive the ointment was. And then secondly, how much of it Mary used. So first of all, if Judas wasn't exaggerating... 300 denarii. Do you, do you know how much this is worth? Do you know what a denarius is? A denarius was a day's wages for manual labor, the kind of job that would get minimum wage these days. And I know that back then they worked 12-hour days. So you take 12 hours a day, 
for 300 days at minimum wage. At today's rates, that translates to about £23,000. £23,000 in a little jar the size of a can of Coke. That's a lot of money. <laughs> Forget that water cash on there, which isn't even real. You probably guessed. <laughs> £23,000. But also, Judas says, why was this not sold for 300 denarii? He wouldn't say it that way if most or even any of the ointment was left in the bottle, I don't think. If some was left, I think he would have said something like, whoa, 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 stop. Okay, now you've wasted some. Okay, we can live with that. But we could still sell the rest of this for, you know, maybe 250 denarii, whatever was left. But he didn't speak like that. He said, why was this not sold for 300 denarii? Mary had used it all. And this makes sense because earlier we heard that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. If she just used a little bit, a few drops, then the house wouldn't be filled with the fragrance. You know, she'd used it all. It was just gone in a moment on Jesus and on the floor. And so Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they're just over the top in love with Jesus. 23,000 pounds? That's nothing compared to you, Jesus. Who cares? We've got you. You're here with us right now. Their hearts were full of wonder and thankfulness and joy, and it just overflowed in this incredibly lavish display of affection for him. But Judas was exactly the opposite. There is no way he would just give away £23,000 like that. No way. In a few days, he's going to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, less than £1,000. His heart is completely opposite. And so in verse 6, John tells us what is in Judas' heart. It says this, He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas values money more than he values Jesus. Mary's treasure was Jesus, Judas' treasure was money. And that's what we're supposed to see, I think, from this story. How beautiful it is when Jesus is more valuable to us than anything else. And how suicidal it is when we value anything above Jesus. In Judas' case, it was money. And you see, in a few days, Judas is going to die at his own hands. He commits suicide. He hangs himself. And the heart we see in him revealed here is paving the way towards that. So then in verses 7 to 8, Jesus responds to Judas. And he gives us three reasons why Judas should leave Mary alone. And I'm just going to actually take them kind of backwards. So one of them is in the second half of verse 8. And Jesus says, Leave her alone, Judas. You do not always have me with you. Second one from the first part of verse 8. Leave her alone, Judas. The poor you always have with you. And then the third one from verse 7. Leave her alone, Judas, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. That is, stop talking in a way that would hinder her from keeping her love, her wonder, her affection, her joy, her hope, her trust in me at my death. Leave her alone, Judas. And so those are the three reasons that Jesus gives why Judas had just shut up. And for me, they sum up the whole story really well. And they give us some things that we can apply to our lives. So I'm just going to go through them in a little bit more detail and pick out some of the highlights from the story that have really kind of struck me as I've prepared. I should have said at the beginning, I've got a bit of a gummy throat. (coughs) So I'll try and cover the mic if I'm going to cough. You'll have to keep an eye on me because if I don't, you might get deafened. (coughs) So reason number one. 
Leave her alone, Judas, because you don't always have me with you. So this first reason is relating to Mary's sense of valuing Jesus. It's about me, Judas. This is about my value. My presence in the body for you to see, to hear, to touch, to eat with is only going to be with you for a short time longer. (coughs) Excuse me. Just maybe five or six days. And Mary is feeling the preciousness of this, Judas. So leave her alone. Her heart is right and yours is wrong. You see, Mary watched her dead brother walk out of the grave. She's seen Jesus' glory. (coughs) She knows he's the resurrection and the life, and he's more valuable than anything else in the world. And so she's reached for the most lavish thing that she can find to express her love and her thankfulness. And just look how lavish this expression is. 23,000 pounds, just gone in a moment. It's unbelievable. You see, there is just no measuring Jesus' value. Nothing compares to him. Isn't that the point? There's no measuring his value. There's no measuring or quantifying his worth. You can't put your heart in a scale and measure how much your, your love for him is. It doesn't work that way. He is infinitely more valuable than anything. And I hope you feel that way. (coughs) But look, she's putting it on his feet. And why is that significant? Why is it significant that she's putting this ointment on his feet? In those days, the feet were considered the lowliest part of a person. They were dirty. They walked around in sandals. They didn't have nice tarmac roads outside. You know, they walked around in dirt and mud and animal dung. The feet were dirty, and they were considered the lowliest part of a person. Servants would wash your feet. So why is she putting this incredibly valuable ointment even on his feet? Well, I think it's because even, even the lowliest part of Jesus is infinitely more valuable than the highest gift we can give him. That's the point. That's, I think, what, we, what we're supposed to see here. And then look, she's wiping it off with her hair. Why is she using her hair? Why not a nice, clean towel? You know, a few hours later, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. He uses a towel. Why is Mary using her hair? Now, I think Mary was just overwhelmed with who it was before her. It was Jesus. And I think she was also so aware of how unworthy she was. And it's that presence of grace. And that's, that's the way it works for me, where I just feel most unworthy. And I think that's how she felt. She was saying... My hair is the, the cleanest, the most beautiful thing I have. And if, if I could magnify your worth, your value, by turning even my hair into a rag for your feet, then that's what I want to do. I think this is beautiful. Jesus is infinitely valuable. And that's exactly where Mary's heart is. So then reason number two from the first part of verse 8. Leave her alone, Judas, because the poor you always have with you. Some people, I've, I've learned, and I've been quite surprised about this, take this verse to mean that we don't need to care for the poor. They think that's what Jesus is teaching here. They think, well, you can do everything you can, you can serve all the, all the people you can, and give everything that you've got. But Jesus says the problem is never going to go away. We're always going to have the poor. So why bother? You know, I think Jesus is saying, don't worry about it. The poor are always going to be there, just forget it. No, no, no. The fact that we should care for the poor is a given. Maybe one day 
I could preach on it. Maybe someone else will preach on it. It is central to our faith. It is central. It's the central ministry of the church. Caring for the poor is what we should be doing. What Jesus is saying to Judas here is, if you really mean what you say about the poor, then good. Guess what? I love the poor, and I, I hope you love the poor, so the rest of your life serve them. They're always going to be there. This work is not going to go away. But Judas doesn't love the poor. What Jesus is really getting at here is the way Judas values money. When Judas mentions the poor, it's a cover, it's a diversion. He's a thief. He loves money. He wants money. It's his security. It's his path to pleasure. That's what he wants. His heart is the opposite of Mary's. So Jesus says, leave her alone. She sees my value. You don't see anything in me except something worth selling. So leave her alone. Now I'm just going <coughs> to turn to a passage from 1 Timothy here. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to read verse 7 to 10. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, the love of money is suicidal. Jesus said it, Paul said it in that passage. Judas's life proved it. He loved money and he ended up killing himself. <coughs> what I think we need to see is that money is deadly. Not just the love of money, money itself is deadly. We've got to handle it, we've got to earn it, we've got to use it. But I think we need to handle it like it's fire in our hands. We've got to understand the power it can have over us. It can so easily tempt us away. If you can't see Jesus in his value, you're going to die and you're not going to see him again. You can't serve both God and money. So, reason number three. Leave her alone, Judas, that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Leave her alone so that she may keep it, whatever it is. I think the ointment is already on the feet and the floor. I explained that earlier. There's none of that left. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, just six days away. This is a very difficult verse. If you read commentators, there are all sorts of different interpretations here. If you read different versions of the Bible, the way it's translated varies quite a bit. And... A lot of the reason for this is that the, the original Greek words behind the phrase, she may keep it, can actually have many different meanings, depending on the context in which they're used. And so that's why they just get translated in all sorts of different ways. So the bit that gets translated, she may keep, is actually just one word in the Greek, a word called tereo. And what that can mean is either to guard or to keep. But when it means to keep, it's more in the sense of to keep one in the state in which he is. It's about a person remaining the same, them remaining the way they are. And keeping that way. <clears throat> and the word that gets translated it is autos, and that most commonly is actually used to mean himself or herself, or even the same. So in my mind, it's, it's nothing to do with the ointment. Jesus isn't talking about the ointment here. What he's talking about is, is Mary guarding herself and keeping her heart in the same state that it's in at that point in time. So remember, Mary is specifically thrilled that Jesus has the grace and the power to raise Lazarus from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. 
And she is blown away by this. She is loving this. And as she pours the oil out, she's not thinking, I wish I didn't have to give so much. She's not in that place at all. She's just so staggered at the resurrecting power of Jesus. And so I think what Jesus is saying here, he wants to make sure that in a week, when he himself is cold, dead, buried in the tomb, he wants to make sure that Mary doesn't lose that sense of wonder, that he is the resurrection and the life, even when he's dead. This isn't Lazarus anymore. This is the one who raises the dead who's dead. And Jesus, Jesus knows that Judas' talk could ruin her for that moment. Because if he infects her with his kind of thinking, his heart, what's she going to say at the tomb of Jesus? What's she going to say when she sees him dead in the grave? Well, I thought he was going to help. I thought he was the resurrection and the life. Doesn't look like it. That's how it could go if Judas keeps speaking. So Jesus is saying, shut up, Judas, that she may keep this faith this trust, this love at my grave. In, uh, in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, in the beginning of verse 9, says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. So just like Mary could have been ruined by Judas's corrupting talk, We can be ruined. We can be affected by this fallen world and the things around us, the things we're exposed to. So what do you expose yourself to? What kind of books do you read? What kind of music do you listen to? What kind of people do you spend your time with? What kind of TV shows or movies do you watch? What are you exposing yourself to? Because all of these things have the potential to erode our beliefs and our faith if we get exposed to the wrong things. We must, the Bible teaches, we must continue to meet regularly with other believers. Here, Sunday mornings, life groups, other, other ways of getting together with people. So that we can, we can be encouraged, we can be built up, we can hear truth, we can see how other people have applied those truths to their lives. We can, we can pray with each other, we can see those prayers answered, we can have our faith built up. We've got to continue meeting together. If we don't, you're like a lone sheep. That lone sheep, just described in that verse, who can easily be picked off by that lion, the devil. So I want to encourage you, get into a life group if you're not in one. Try and come more regularly if you can. If there are other ways you can get to meet with Christians more often, do it. It's good for you. You need it. And take care what you expose yourself to. So I'm going to summarize in a moment. Sarah, Dan, can you come up and just um, just start playing? the lines are drawn in this passage you've got Judas and you've got Mary and you're like one of those people remember you can't serve both God and money do you love money I think God wants to do some work in some people's hearts this morning now your love of money may not be as obvious as Judas's but I know from my life it can be there in varying degrees it can come, it can go 
there are always issues here that we need to deal with and I think God wants to deal with some of us today and remember your life is going to be judged when Jesus returns now if that is a daunting prospect for you based on what the Holy Spirit may have been putting his finger on this morning in your life I've got some good news for you it's not too late if you're feeling like a bad steward if you're feeling beaten up by what I've just shared you can become faithful you can become fruitful start giving just a little bit and see what God does with it. It's not too late. No judgment is going to be made until the king returns. There is still time. Don't let the shame, any condemnation, any guilt you're feeling about these things cause you to be stuck. In the grace of God, just start being faithful with a little and make a commitment before him this morning. And if you're feeling exposed to the influences of this world, maybe you're feeling like that lone sheep you can make a commitment before God this morning maybe you need to cut some stuff out of your life maybe you need to commit to come here more regularly or or join a life group or find some other way to spend more time with believers and just so you know God will happily help you with any of those endeavours so ask him ask him to help you I just want to pray to close and then we're going to go into time of worship but as we start singing if any of you want to respond if any of you need prayer for anything, then um, please just say so. Put your hand up, get someone around you to pray for you. If you want to come forward and be prayed for by me or Stuart or someone else, just go for it. Um, but let's just pray. Father, I thank you for your word, as I did at the beginning. Your word is powerful. Your word is a double-edged sword. And it pierces down to reveal the slaveries that we are in. And Lord, I pray now for grace. I pray for boldness anyone here today who has felt your Holy Spirit touching on things that they need to deal with and I pray that you'll give us boldness to respond, boldness to ask for your help and I pray Holy Spirit you'll give us the strength to follow up on those things and continue in our life becoming a better steward spending more time with believers, cutting things out of our life that are not helpful in the name of Jesus thank you Jesus like to stand we're going to go into worship soon if, uh, like I say if anybody has anything you want to deal with before God if you need prayer just grab someone near you feel free to come forward if you want to I'll be here but we're going to start worshiping Jesus